Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Edwina Brown, consultant nephrologist at the Imperial College Renal and Transplant Centre at Hammersmith Hospital, which was my old stomping ground. And she's also honorary professor of renal medicine at Imperial College London. Edwina obtained her medical undergraduate degree at uh, Somerville College, Oxford, and University College Hospital, London, and then undertook renal training at Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut in the United States, as well as at University College and Charing Cross Hospitals in London. She was then appointed to her consultant position. With peritoneal dialysis, one of Professor Brown's clinical and academic interests, she was recently made president of the International Society for Peritoneal Dialysis, or PD. A prolific author, Edwina has written or co-authored 200 papers for distinguished journals, numerous book chapters, and is also editor of a number of books, including the Oxford Handbook of Dialysis. She's been principal investigator for several multi-center studies, some of which we shall discuss. Her other achievements include being the principal organizer for the annual Supportive Care for Renal Patient Meeting and the United Kingdom Peritoneal Dialysis Academy, chairing and co-chairing guideline committees, and being awarded a fellowship of the European Renal Association and honorary membership in the United Kingdom Kidney Association. In her spare time, and it's astonishing that she has any, Edwina likes to keep active and can often be found walking or hiking. She also loves travel, music, and theater, which she has a lot more time for now that her two sons, both of whom are doctors, are all grown up. Professor Edwina Brown, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So firstly, how can nephrologists take a more patient-centric approach to medical care and decision-making? Well, first of all, many congratulations for asking the question that really defines my ethos for everything that I do in terms of clinical care, education, research, political activities. And I think the most important thing is that we stop using the word patient. I've been trying to get medical students to do that for a long time, um, and it's now beginning to enter the medical literature. So as soon as you start using the word patient, it's a them and us. Whereas if you start thinking about the person with the long-term condition or the person in front of us, then often what we want to do and the way we address problems change. And I also think it's helpful if we start thinking about would we actually want this treatment for ourselves, for our family member, for our best friend? Um, and, and often when I'm teaching students, I will say, what would you do if this was your grandparent? Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. One of the, the people I, I had the privilege to work with for many years, uh, now departed, Bill Cook, who built the Cook Organization, um, a very, very successful medical device company. His central operating concept was to put the patient or person with disease at the center of everything he had done rather than you, designing des devices to solve problems. It was always trying to view things from their perspective. So you're, you're president of the International Society for Peritoneal Dialysis. Talk to us about your goals for the organization under your stewardship. Well, first of all, it was to revive it from its inactivity over the COVID era. 
And I think that has now happened. Um, and also to make it an inclusive society for not just medics, but 90% of our members are currently doctors. But peritoneal dialysis is delivered by nurses. And it's also in partnership with industry. What, what I'm trying to do is to get um, it less of a research um, type organization, but also to think about how do we engage everybody who's involved in PD? So to make it a community of PD enthusiasts. So people um, really want to belong. So one of the things that we're looking at at the moment, for example, is to create an associate membership for clinical nurses um, and um, allied health professionals who are involved in PD. Um, most of our current nurse uh, members are very senior nurses, nurse researchers, uh, which is great. And I, I fully recommend um, them joining and being involved because they're really key for um, production of guidelines, education, etc. But we really need to engage with the people on the ground who are delivering PD. So some of the things we've done to do this is creating webinars, um, which is a hangover from the COVID era, but actually one of the really very good developments from COVID. And we've been targeting those at individual countries that are trying to grow PD, for example, Pakistan, Indonesia, um, supporting countries at the start of their PD journey, such as Senegal, We've also got agreements in place with all the major societies, so the Asian Pacific Society, um, the South um, Latin American Society, it's, and I'm off to the Korea, um, in fact, tomorrow, um, to where we can have ISPD-supported symposia so that PD really becomes a focus of all um, big international meetings. And really importantly, is the partnership with industry, um, not being dictated to by industry, but working together to uh, develop home dialysis, um, both in high and low income countries. And to this end, we're forming um, in conjunction with the International Society of Nephrology, um, something called the International Home Dialysis Consortium. So using the political know-how of the much bigger um, ISN, um, along with our people on the ground um, delivering education and support um, from ISPD. Yeah, the comment about engaging with the people who could benefit from peritoneal dialysis, I wonder about awareness, actually. I mean, I think many people would know of the existence of kidney transplantation as an option, but I wonder how many lay people would know about peritoneal dialysis. So I'll tell you what, although most of our listeners are medical professionals, many are not. They're just, you know, interested lay people. And they may think that hemodialysis is what we're talking about. So for those not familiar, can you provide a 30,000 foot view of what PD is and the role it plays in the treatment of patients with renal failure and then advance it for, for our medical well, unfortunately, it's not just lay people who know nothing about peritoneal dialysis. It's also many um, medical people and even many who work in the renal community. So peritoneal dialysis is a way of doing dialysis at home. 
So I always say to people about to start on dialysis that there's two ways of doing dialysis. You can either go to hospital three times a week or to a dialysis center, um, and usually their face falls because who wants to go to a hospital three times a week? Or there's a much simpler way of doing it at home, and then often much more interested when you present it like that. So it's making use of the space that we all have in our abdomen, that's the peritoneum, um, and using the lining of the peritoneal cavity as the exchange membrane across which the um, waste products will pass from the bloodstream into the fluid. So you run fluid into the abdomen and through a catheter, and when it drains out, it, it takes the waste products with it. So the analogy that I often use when describing it to people who are thinking about needing dialysis is thinking about like a tea bag in water. How quickly does that water go brown? Because it's that's the process um, of the small molecular solutes or, or even larger ones passing across the peritoneal membrane from the bloodstream into the fluid. Interestingly, I mean, PD can be developed in, in or delivered in two ways. It can be done manually, just using plastic bags. So you drain the fluid out into an empty bag um, and then run new fluid in. And that process takes about 30 to 40 minutes. And you do that anything from two to four times a day, five to seven days a week, um, depending on how much kidney function you've still got. Or you can use a cycling machine which you put the big bags of fluid um, on top of the machine, which then cycles the fluid while you're asleep at night. Um, and then that leaves you free during the day um, to be able to do your usual activities. And what about uh, peritoneal dialysis from a global perspective? You've mentioned rural medicine, you've mentioned some other countries. So give us a, a global perspective. So PD is less costly and particularly so in high-income countries. So in high-income countries, it costs a lot to pay um, all the nurses, technicians, etc., to deliver hemodialysis. Even in low-income countries, um, there are many advantages to PD, but the main problem in lower-income countries is getting the fluid, which is mostly made by um, there's two major companies that make the fluid and it then has to be imported. So obviously there's costs involved with that. And it's also being costed in um, dollars rather than in local currencies. But how much it's used in, in different countries is completely distorted by the local cultures and healthcare environment. So some countries, such as Hong Kong, Mexico, um, have got a what's called a PD first. In other words, they recognize that PD is less costly. So let's put um, the government funding into PD and people will have to pay for hemodialysis. In other countries, the hemodialysis industry has um, taken over, as it were, and the whole market is distorted. So, for example, in India, nephrologists will get paid for each time they see um, somebody on hemodialysis 
but they don't get paid for somebody doing PD. So in India, only about 4% of people are actually on PD. So there's all of 4,000 patients on PD in the whole of India. Um, as against China, where PD is seen as being economically sensible and is used, and it's now actually the biggest user of PD um, worldwide. Thailand is an interesting example. Um, the government there 15 years ago decided that they were going to develop a PD first policy. And dialysis suddenly became available to their population. It hadn't been very much previously. But what happened was that because people have to pay for hemodialysis, and again, probably because um, nephrologists were being paid by hemodialysis companies, um, and also doctors and patients like flashing lights and fancy-looking machines and find the manual concept of CAPD antiquated, um, they felt that PD was not so good and pressurized the government to allow hemodialysis to take over. So that's what I mean. There are many distortions. Interestingly, in high-income countries, the opposite is happening because the government has suddenly discovered that they're paying huge amounts for industry-led um, hemodialysis. So in the US, um, they've, what they've done is they've bundled so units will get paid the same whether the people are on hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis. And in fact, they've brought the cost down per patient. So often in some instances, people will make a loss on hemodialysis, but a profit on peritoneal dialysis. This coming week, I'm actually going to Korea. Korea used to be, South Korea used to be a big user of PD then, like in many Western countries, this dropped. So now only 5% of patients are on PD. Korea has a public health system, um, and the government there has decided that in the next 10 years, they want to see 30% of people on peritoneal dialysis. So they've reached out to the ISPD um, to support them in the education um, that's going to be needed to be able to deliver on this. Fascinating. Um, you're involved, Edwin, in, in, in a number of studies, including BOLD, uh, Broadening Options for Long-Term Dialysis in the Elderly, and FEPOD, which stands for Frail Elderly Patient Outcomes on Dialysis. I always love these acronyms. Talk to us about the effect age has on clinical decision-making when it comes to dialysis and, and what these studies have revealed. So both these studies were done with the background of PD not being used very much in older people because of the perception that um, older people can't do PD, but, but also um, with the knowledge that hemodialysis can really be quite disadvantageous. It's, it's now very well documented that the hemodynamic swings that happen on hemodialysis with drops in blood pressure on each dialysis uh, has adverse effects in terms of dropping cerebral blood flow, dropping renal blood flow, dropping cardiac blood flow, and well-documented um, rapid declines in kidney function, um, cognitive function, etc., and hemodialysis. 
So the design of both those studies um, was using existing PD patients and then finding hemodialysis patients um, and matching them to the PD patients by age, gender, ethnicity, um, postcode. Um, so we got an index of social deprivation. Um, and for the FEPOD study, we also included diabetes as a measure of comorbidity. So the difference between the two studies is that BOLD was done in the early 2000s, and it was mostly fit older patients because they were independent and doing the PD themselves. And FEPOD was done after the introduction of assisted peritoneal dialysis, which is a funded system in the UK where a healthcare assistant, you don't need a nurse, will go to somebody's home and actually do the PD procedure for them. Um, and both studies showed that the burden of dialysis was less on PD compared to hemodialysis. So in the BOLD study, we used something called illness intrusiveness, which was lower in PD compared to um, hemodialysis. And in the um, FEPOD study, actually showed that it wasn't dialysis modality that affected people's quality of life. It was frailty. So if you were frail, it didn't really matter which type of dialysis modality you were on. Um, your quality of life was dominated by frailty. But even so, your renal treatment satisfaction score was better on PD compared to um, hemodialysis. So take this up a notch for us more broadly, dealing with kidney failure in aging patients and how we as a society must plan for, let's face it, an aging population. So that's a really important question because as you say, we're all getting older and as we get older, we carry a burden of um, different long-term conditions with us. So I often use the analogy of an old car um, when talking about this with, with um, people. You, you've got an old battered car, you can replace um, an engine, you can replace a wheel, you can re-upholster it, but you've still got an old battered car. Um, and, and certainly your, your tolerance for interventions goes down um, and your resilience goes down as you get older and more frail. So dialysis was introduced um, in the 60s and 70s predominantly for young people to enable them to either get a kidney transplant and to um, remain socially useful. I hate the term, but that's what was used at the time, but to enable younger people to engage in society. I think for older people, we need to be very conscious that we're often just medicalizing the end of life. And I often use the term with um, people and families that we're not offering immortality. We're really trying to improve symptoms, enable people to achieve their goals. It could be just that they want to get to their granddaughter's wedding at the end of the year, but we don't want to make them miserable. So we need to know when we're going to stop or even not start. Okay. So an another study you're leading is on, on kidney transplantation in older patients. And the acronym for that one is KTOP, I presume, Kidney Transplantation in Older Patients. 
Can you provide some insights into that work and, and the conclusions you've been able to draw? So with an aging um, population, it's not surprising. And, and the fact that kidney disease becomes much more common as you get older, um, the demand for um, transplantation in older people is increasing. Again, kidney transplantation is devised for younger people and carries a huge burden of medication, hospital visits, and complications from the medications, particularly infections with immunosuppression. So we set up this study called KTOP. It's not finished yet, so I can't give you any hard data. Um, The last patient's um, 12-month follow-up visit after transplantation is in June. Um, But so far, what we've been able to do is highlight um, the importance of frailty affecting quality of life of people on the wait list, um, the increased infections while on the wait list, and on in, into transplantation. Anecdotally, we've certainly had quite a few deaths and poor com- outcomes. At the same time as, as collecting the hard data on outcomes and quality of life, we've been running a qualitative study uh, looking at people's expectations from transplantation and and how these then match up with the actual outcomes. That part of the study is is almost complete. And of course, a qualitative study is only interviewing people who are still alive. It doesn't interview the people who died post-transplant. But what we have found from this is that receiving a transplant is not necessarily associated with experiencing an improved quality of life in people who are frail um, at the time of, of transplantation. Yeah, obviously, with with an aging population, with uh, advancing knowledge in so many spheres of medicine, society is going to have to make decisions where it spends its money. I mean, we can sort of try and bury our head in the sand, but <laughs> at some point, our resources are completely constrained, right? I've got a brother who's an economist and he he has always maintained that healthcare costs can bring down any economy yeah um and and it's something that we as a society need to address uh and it's one of the reasons that the national health service is is creaking at the edges um or, or more than creaking is is because people's demands um are often unrealistic at, at an individual level and at a society level, as you've said, are, are not sustainable. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, anyone who thinks that healthcare is simple um, or a solution, finding solutions to these problems is simple, um, needs to wake up and smell the roses. So last year, you co-chaired the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Controversies Conference on symptom-based complications in dialysis. Can you give us an overview What are the controversies or controversies and how are they being addressed? There is an increasing awareness that we do need to focus on the person in front of us. And and this controversies conference was on the background of previous controversies conferences, which had really highlighted the need or the observation that actually most things that affect the well-being of people on dialysis are not actually affected by the dialysis process itself. And the way, and certainly the way people feel and the symptoms they have is not addressed in really by the dialysis process or just focusing on 
biochemistry or estimations of urea removal, so-called KTOV. So this conference really focused on the need to person-centered care. Um, We had a lot of discussion about um, patient-reported outcome measures. So there's a whole industry developing of um, questionnaires focusing on symptom control, symptoms on um, depression, quality of life, um, and trying to integrate those in, into um, electronic healthcare records, and then they can be monitored by registries. And, and that was the big controversy, because how often are you going to fill in questionnaires? And there's quite a lot of data that, by certainly by using electronic questionnaires, uh, only 30 to 40% of people actually engage in doing that. Even when you, um, in research studies, where you're using paper-based as well as electronic, and research nurses who are trying to infuse people to fill in their questionnaires, even then, only 70 to 80% of questionnaires get completed. And then if you want to ask the people to repeat this, you get burnout. And you're really going to disadvantage the people who don't have internet access, those who don't speak the first language, those who are cognitively impaired, etc. So that was the main controversy. So we, we actually concluded that what's really important is to, again, set people's expectations that dialysis is not going to cure everything. I always remember one patient who told me that the reason he went on dialysis so he was so he could walk again. But he hadn't walked for 10 years since he'd had a stroke. So, you know, we do need to set people's expectations uh, and, and, and always really address, use broad open questions uh, rather than using questionnaires. So I will always ask somebody, how do you feel? Is there anything bothering you at the moment? How are you now compared to six months ago? So things like that. So you really want to know about symptoms that actually bother somebody rather than just saying, yes, I, you know, I get a twinge here or there um, intermittently sort of thing. So what really bothers people and really, again, trying to avoid um, polypharmacy. The last thing we want is a different pill for each symptom. Yeah. I mean, this focus on PROMS, patient reported outcome measures, I know that regulators are taking them on board, but yeah, we have to take into account. Um, In fact, someone very wise told me that the more questions you ask in any kind of survey, the less likely you are to, um, to, to have them answered. And of course, you know, but there's the reliability, isn't there, of, of questions that are, that are answered. So, Edwina, some of your uh, more recent books include discussions on end-of-life care in nephrology and even bereavement due to uh, kidney disease. Can you provide us with your thoughts on this? And, you know, we've talked about the National Health Service straining, and again, having worked in America, this, this, the situation over there is, is, is not all rosy. Um, are you satisfied with, with the bereavement support that's provided within the NHS? I actually found that question very difficult because as a renal unit, we don't get involved with bereavement support. And, and that probably speaks for itself. So different renal units have different levels of engagement with supportive care, palliative care, end of life care, whatever you want to call it. Um, some pretend it doesn't happen. Some 
will say this is a responsibility of um, the community. Um, some will actually have uh, supportive care teams with nurses actually designated um, as you know as a supportive care nurse, um, so that they are responsible for supporting people in the community once they've made the decision not to have dialysis. Um, and, and some renal units will actually have commemoration services um, because if you're on hemodialysis, you know that the person next door has died because they don't come to dialysis anymore. So, you know, so, and, and that's a level of support for both patients and for, for family members. I happen to work in a unit which very much you know, despite my influence, it still does not have a supportive care team um, and very much believes that this is something that should happen in the community. So our families are often left in limbo because they have had their support in the hospital with a very complex illness, often after days or weeks in, in hospital, and they're then left to fend in the community trying to find bereavement support. So, I mean, I guess, again, it's just any kind of healthcare. We do need to think about this, I believe, in a linear manner um, and how we engage with people who are dealing with the disease, their loved ones, their supporters, how we disseminate information and how we do a better job at it. Communication, communication. When you became a, a consultant, you were the only female consultant nephrologist in England uh, what challenges did you face to get into this position? Do you think it's easier for women to become consultants now? So the challenges were that there were very few of us around, um, or a few women, uh, and um, you often felt that just being interviewed for a consultant job, they people had done the tick box exercise, um, and they'd interviewed a woman, but they certainly weren't going to give them the job. So, so I, I had various um, things like going, going for an interview when I was admittedly nine months pregnant and somebody saying, you've been very busy the last few months. And I said, yes, I've had six papers published. I've had my MD thesis submitted. And they said, when's the baby due? Uh, I was also told that I was being unrealistic, that most women don't want to become consultants. And, and even somebody who told me that it was immoral to have two relatively high incomes in one family. So from that viewpoint, there isn't the prejudice against women. And you know, with now 60, 70% of medical students being women, it's not surprising that um, the number of women consultants have greatly increased. But I think it's still not easy for women. Um, the, the child caring ages are, are really difficult. Um, I see it with younger colleagues. I see it with my daughter-in-law. You know, costs of childcare are disproportionately much higher than when I, when I was um, doing this. I had two boys. And, and it, it does have an impact on what you can do outside your, you know, work hours. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to want to do a, even a Zoom call at five o'clock in the evening when you've got to feed the baby or etc so you have long gaps in your cv um, in terms of publications if you're in academics um, in terms of outside immediate clinical um, air arena in terms of engagement with 
you know, managerial things, etc., that can get you um, discretionary points or, or, or whatever. So I think it's still difficult for women, though it's certainly easier than it used to be. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that the Hammersmith was my stomping ground as a registrar and senior reg. And at the time, there was a surgeon there, Avril Mansfield. I don't know if, did you ever come across Avril? Um, I, I know the name, but I didn't know her. Well, she was not, number one, she was probably the best vascular surgeon I've ever seen. But I remember her, she was asked several times during a, what was a very distinguished career about, you know, dealing with being a woman. And she said, she always brushed it aside and said, I think if you're doing a good job, they don't care whether you're a man or a woman. And one thing that I learned from Avril was how important it is to be nice. Yes, be good at your job, but be nice. And I think it was Sir William Osler who said that a great doctor should be able, available, and most importantly, affable. So, uh, you know, it, it is interesting to see the changes now, and there's more women than men going into the specialty. So you've certainly had a very, very impressive career thus far, and I'm sure there's a lot more to come. But for my final question for you, if you came across a magic genie who offers to grant you three wishes in your field of healthcare, what would those wishes be? I, I actually found that the most difficult question <laughs> to, to think about. I mean, apart from thinking that there's no kidney disease at all, that suddenly you've got rid of all of society's inequities which, of course, you're never going to be able to do. So, so what I've written down is, number one, put people receiving health care at the centre of everything. So, in other words, d- deliver a healthcare system so that it is staffed and people are trained um, so you can have realistic conversations about outcomes. So people are involved in their healthcare decision-making um, and really think about outcomes, particularly for older people. And then thinking about removing the distortions. So if healthcare was being arranged so that it's person-centered, which it certainly isn't at the moment, why why isn't that? What are the distortions? So there's distortions in the way healthcare is structured. You often get the impression it's run for the benefits of the staff rather than the people that we are trying to, um, you know, manage, help, etc. So, and, and we certainly need to get away from taking healthcare people from lower income countries to support us in higher income countries. So that's wearing my, my global hat. Um, you know, if somewhere, if you're trying to develop PD in, uh, in Senegal, I don't want to see, um, and I mean, the ISPD doesn't want to see people we've got trained to do PD in Senegal suddenly moving to France um, to do PD. Um, and we need you to remove the distortions introduced by industry. So a lot of what happens is the commercial pressures, the drugs, interventions, particularly true in in private healthcare systems where people are free for service, but even in, in within the NHS, uh, you know, there's pressure to use because of advertising, people's expectations, often to use expensive drugs, often with limited benefit. Um, and there are certainly distortions produced um, in, in, in dialysis 
by by perceptions, you know, of, of the advantages of hemodialysis as against being able to maintain people at home on their own dialysis. Interesting. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Professor Edwina Brown for taking the time to join us and frankly for all you're doing to help those living with kidney disease. It's been thought-provoking and I, for one, have learned a lot. Well, thank you for asking me. I've also enjoyed our conversation. Um, You know, uh, there's a friend of mine who uses a great expression, I shall go to bed less dumb. (laughs) (laughs) So folks, please subscribe so you never miss an episode and dig into our quite extensive archives and join us again next week for yet another fascinating episode. Until then, I'm Jonathan Sackyer and please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.